uh, last week I mentioned in class that um, I'm hoping that a, a church becomes available for, for Ben Burdick to, because um, uh, I just think the world of Ben as a, as a promising young pastor and seminary graduate, and somebody from Staten Island, New York, heard the broadcast of this. And, did they contact you? Yeah, I know, I, I know a little bit about that church, Evangelical Free Church. So, Hello, Staten Island. <laughs> it's good. Anybody else need a good pastor? Ben is right here. All right. Good. Well, thank you. We are talking again today about this topic of the millennium. What is it? When does it happen? And then... What about this other topic related to this? There's uh, predictions of a great tribulation, a great time of suffering and hardship on the earth. And when will that happen? So here's our schedule. Today we'll talk about the post-millennial view and the premillennial view. And next Sunday, April 5th, final judgment and the, and the doctrine of hell, a very difficult doctrine to talk about. But it's there in the Bible and uh, and Pastor Jamie mentioned it. I think faithfully and accurately again this morning in the sermon. And then April 12th, no class because it's Easter and much, many more visitors on campus. And then um, April 19th, that's chapter 57 on heaven. And then we'll be done with the book. And Ron Dickerson and I are talking about what are we going to do then for a new surprise for everybody after that. Okay, the word millennium in English, coming from a Latin word, means 1,000 years. And it's taken from Revelation 20, verse 4, where it says they came to life and reigned for a thousand years. Who is this? What happened? When is this thousand years? Is it future? Is it now? <clears throat> and if it is future, what is it like? We started talking about that last week, and we will, I think, finish it up this morning. Now, um, it's in the larger context of the Bible's teaching about the fact that Jesus promised that he would come back to earth. He says, uh, and, and if I, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and, rec- and uh, receive you to myself or take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So, um, Jesus said he will come back. When he ascended into heaven, the angels uh, that were there, when he, he went up into heaven, said, uh, he will come in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. So there's a promise again and again in the Bible that Jesus is going to come back. And what will happen when he comes back? Well, here I'm going to read now this primary passage on this teaching from Revelation 20. And the question is, how do we figure out what this means? <clears throat> let's, uh, let's read it together. It's on the back page of your handout, too, if you want to follow it along there or in your Bible. Uh, last book in the Bible, near the end of that book, Revelation 20, the Apostle John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. <clears throat> it's the first mention of that thousand years, that millennium. Satan is bound during that time and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So there's a prediction of this time when Satan is bound for a thousand years and then he's released after it. And that's in trying to figure out what this is and when it happens. 
That's important to remember. During that time, Satan is thrown into the pit and bound, and then he's released for a while. <clears throat> then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So Satan is thrown into this pit for a thousand years, but these people are reigning with Christ for a thousand years. <clears throat> it looks like they came to life. It looks like they experienced a resurrection. The rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. A blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. That's Again, it's saying the same thing. They will reign with Christ for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to deliver them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. <clears throat> but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, last week, we looked at the view called amillennialism. This is a view that Revelation 20 really isn't talking about the future at all. It's just talking about, in, in a very symbolic and figurative way, it's talking about the fact that Christ is now reigning in heaven, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he says, and people who die go to be with him and they reign with him in heaven. That's amillennialism. And the chart of the future with amillennialism is that there's no future millennium. Here we are in the church age, 2009 might be here, might be here, might be here, might be here, we don't know. 2009 is in the church age. And then, all of a sudden, Christ comes back, Believers and unbelievers are raised, there's a final judgment, and then there's new heavens and new earth and the eternal state. Where's the millennium? They would say, well, Revelation 20 is such symbolic language, it just refers to this present age. And, and, the, and the people say, well, wait a minute, is Satan bound right now? Yep. And that the gospel goes to the nations, and so there's some restriction of Satan's activity. And that's the view that we looked at last week. And then I had some objections to it. Uh, that we went through. I'm not going, to, not going to spend time on that. Now, there's another view called post-millennialism. <clears throat> that is, these people think that uh, the church age is going to get better and better and better and better, and the gospel is going to win more and more people, and pretty soon it's going to be quite a wonderful earth to live on because the teachings of Christ and his influence will become so powerful that the, uh, that the earth will um, uh, just be a wonderful place to live. And uh, then after a thousand years of that wonderful state of the earth being better, post the millennium, after the millennium, Christ will come back and there'll be resurrection and judgment and an eternal state. I'll look at that view in a minute. It's not a really common view, but Jonathan Edwards, the American theologian in the early history of the United States, held that view. And some other people, when everything was looking good in terms of the development of the United States and the new freedoms that were available to everyone and the spread of Christian influence there. Then the third view, and the one I hold, is, post, uh, is premillennialism. I think that the church age is going to go on until a day when suddenly Christ comes back. 
He catches up believers to be with himself. 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the sound, voice of the archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air. And then I think immediately we come right back to earth and reign with Christ for a thousand years, uh, a wonderful earthly reign of Christ where Satan is and demons no longer have any influence on the earth, and that is the millennium. And then after that, Satan is loosed for a while from his prison, and uh, then he's defeated decisively by the Lord, and there's a resurrection of unbelievers and final judgment, and then new heavens and new earth. That's the view I hold. Uh, now, there are two varieties of that. Two varieties of premillennialism. Depends on where the tribulation comes. The tribulation, a time of great suffering and hardship on the earth. Some people, including me, think the tribulation is going to come here during this church age before Christ comes back. And the Christians then, will we go through it or not? In this view. Yeah, because see, we're right here in the church age. We're caught up and we come right back down to earth. There's no long gap. But so we go through the tribulation. And that's what I'm going to argue for today. Many other people, including, I would say, the majority of the faculty at Phoenix Seminary and Pastor Darrell, and I think Jamie, although I haven't asked him specifically or I can't remember what he holds, but um, would hold to a different view and see the tribulation here. This is after Christians are caught up to heaven and, and we are there for seven years while the tribulation is going on on earth and then we come back. So there's the difference, and we'll get to those. That's, that's a pre-tribulational view, that is, Christ comes back before the tribulation. Okay, that's the overview. Now, what about this, this view that I mentioned, that, 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 that the earth is going to get better and better, the gospel is going to have power and triumph over eight, many nations of the world, and there's going to be a millennial kingdom even without Jesus here. <clears throat> that's called post-millennialism. How do they argue for that? Well, they say, let's just believe very strongly in the power of the gospel. Look, the Great Commission leads us to expect the gospel to go forth and result in a largely Christian world. Didn't Jesus say, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me? Matthew 28:18 to 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So, don't we believe that this is going to happen and that all nations will be discipled? And, um, and so the church age will lead to improvement, greater and greater improvement on the earth uh, for a thousand years or a long period of time. There'll be a kind of a Christian character to the world, and then Christ will come back. The parables with the kingdom also, these people say, indicate <clears throat> that things are going to gradually get better and better until the world is just a wonderful place. Matthew 13, 31 and following. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. That's what the kingdom is like. It starts small, but it gets very big and has great influence. Or <clears throat> another parable, Mark, or Matthew 13:33. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. So it's a little start and then it spreads through the whole world. Those are the arguments for post-millennialism. So they argue the world is becoming more Christian. And it's true. 
It's true there is a more spread of the gospel in Africa, Asia, Latin America in the last two or three decades than there has ever been in the history of the world. So there is some, you know, some, something to appeal to here. But, <clears throat> but actually, when they're talking about a millennium, they're really talking about something pretty different from what I talk about. I talk about Jesus being on earth, reigning with resurrected believers, helping him reign, and renewed earth with the, with the thorns and thistles gone and the Garden of Eden, nature of creation restored, and Jesus reigning in perfect peace over all the kingdoms of the earth. And I mean, that's the kind of millennium I'm thinking about. They're just thinking about a world that has strong Christian influence in it. Um, many, many Christians influencing society. Now, uh, my response to the... Look, I'll tell you. My response to post-millennialism basically is, you guys have hardly any Bible verses to support this at all. I mean, that's basically what my response is. It, it just, it, when you look at it, it's surprising to me how weak the proof texts are. I mean, they're just I mean, mustard seed, leaven, and great commission. Well, you know, I already believed those, but I didn't think they led to, to, to a, a greatly uh, changed earth. So, uh, great commission doesn't mean that Christ uses his authority to bring about the conversion of the majority of the world. And as far as the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, they don't tell us how much the mustard, the mustard tree or the leaven will influence uh, or how much the kingdom will, will grow and influence the whole world. They just say it goes from small to large. And when they say the world is becoming more Christian, hmm, um, my response is, you know, the world's also becoming a lot more evil, and the evil is having a lot of influence, and you don't have to go very far but turn on the TV news or the newspaper, looking at the newspaper. And even where Bible-believing Christians comprise large segments of the population, nothing like an earthly millennial kingdom occurs. And here's my example. Texas. Because I've read someplace that 50% of the population of Texas goes or belongs to Southern Baptist churches. But, you know, I've visited Texas, and it just doesn't look like a millennium to me. That's a nice place. But <laughs> it's just, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't mean to put down Texas. Texas is a nice place. But I don't see that it's that much different from Arizona, to be honest. So, it seems to me the Bible is looking forward to something more than Texas. <laughs> I mean, and if in Texas, you got a lot of lot of professing Christians. It's not just Southern Baptists. I mean, there are conservative Bible-believing Methodists. There are Bible churches. There are conservative uh, other kinds of Presbyterian churches, and many other things in Texas. But it's still just, it's still Texas. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I just am not persuaded by the post-millennial view. Um, and in fact, when I look at what the New Testament says about what's going to happen as time goes on, it looks to me like there are some predictions about things getting a lot worse. So, uh, and, uh, and really uh, believers perhaps being in a, in, a, in a minority. So Matthew 7, 13 to 14, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Luke 18, 8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And it doesn't say he won't, but it's saying, you know, what, you know, we're not sure that there's, uh, well, it's, it's, it's kind of questioning well, where will it be. 
And 2 Thessalonians 2, more explicit, verses 3 to 4, let no one deceive you in any way. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Well, I don't, I don't think that's happened yet, but it looks like there's, there's going to be this man of lawlessness or antichrist. And then Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, in the last days there will become times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Now, this is starting to look like what we're seeing increase in the present day, doesn't it? Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Indeed, Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. So, um, and Matthew 24, talking about this tribulation, Matthew 24, 21 and following, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will, heavens will be shaken. Then, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Doesn't it look like from this passage that Jesus is saying things are going to get worse and worse and then they'll see the Son of Man coming back on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So uh, that's what the course of history looks like to me. Many passages indicate, indicate that Christ could return soon, and we must be ready, okay, for him to return. Oh, this is also, in, 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 the, in response to this idea that there's going to be the earth getting better and better, and then it's going to be so Christian that there'll be a thousand years before Christ comes back, well, I think we had all those verses a couple of weeks ago about how Jesus could come at any time, be ready. He's coming at a time you don't expect. And I don't think post-millennialists can do that because they're going to wait till this millennium is set up and then they've got another thousand years to wait. So, so that's another argument against, um, against the post-millennial view. So I, I don't find that persuasive. What do I find valuable in the post-millennial view? Uh, their encouragement to us to believe in the power of the gospel to change people's lives. And their encouragement to us to believe that, the, that as the mustard seed grows and becomes a tree, as the leaven goes and, and leavens or, or, or the whole lump of dough, so, so we can expect that there will be increasing influence of the good news of the gospel, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, the positive teachings of the Bible that will influence our families, our workplaces, our schools, our cities, our governments perhaps hospitals, our educational situation, um, that, that there will be an influence of Christ through his people on the earth. We don't know how strong or how weak that'll be, but the post-millennialists encourage us <clears throat> to believe that there can be a positive transforming power of the gospel, uh, you know, wherever we have influence. And so I'm glad for that. Okay, now, that's that view. Now let's go on to... Premillennialism. 
Okay, we're going to go back. Premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. It has to do with the time of Christ's return. So a view that says Jesus comes back premillennial or premillennially is coming as premillennial. Just what would you guess? Premillennial was Jesus going to come back before or after? If it starts with the prefix pre. Before. All right. Premillennial means Jesus comes back pre the millennium or before the millennium. And that's the view I hold. So on this picture up here, we have Christ coming back before this millennium. He comes back, in fact, to set up this millennium. And that's, that's the view that I now think to be true. But see, some people will say to me, but wait a minute, Wayne. When Jesus comes back, why doesn't he just have judgment and new heavens and new earth and get everything over with? Why do you have this thousand years stuck in here, this extra time before everything gets all wrapped up? Well, answer one is it looks like Revelation 20 is talking about that. But answer two is there are some other verses that look like that. Now look at this. Isaiah 65, 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days for the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. This is not a normal state of affairs that we see now. A young man a hundred years old dying? Uh, what? I, I don't know. Um, no more infants who die just live just a few days. People live, but then they still die. It doesn't look like it's this present age. But it doesn't look like new heavens and new earth where nobody dies. Like something's different. And uh, look at this, Zechariah 14. Then the Lord your God will come and the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be neither cold nor frost. There shall be continuous days known to the Lord, not day and night. For at evening there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Oh, that sounds, that's wonderful. You think, oh, this might be new heavens and new earth. might be the eternal state. And the Lord will become king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. But wait a minute. Is it, is, it the, is it the new heavens and new earth? No, because this shall be the plague with which the Lord will smite all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. He's still got evil. See, it isn't all cast into the lake of fire and put in hell. There are people on earth doing evil. And the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem, their flesh shall rot while they're still in their feet, their eyes shall rot in their sockets, their tongues shall rot in their mouths. Then everyone that survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. So it looks like the Lord is King on earth, but there's still some rebellion and some evil. He defeats it, and then some of those people come and worship him. That's another passage from Zechariah 14. It doesn't look like this age, but it because the Lord is on the earth as king. But it doesn't look like an uh, eternal state either. And then there's some New Testament passages in addition to Revelation 20 that look like this. Revelation 2, 26 to 27. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron <clears throat> as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. This is not right now. 
Jesus giving authority over the nations to the one who conquers. But it's also not new heavens and new earth because they're still evil. He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earth and pots are broken in pieces. There's, there's an earthly reign with believers sharing with Christ in that reign. <coughs> Excuse me. And it looks like that reign is being exercised even over evil unbelievers who are rebelling against Christ. So that Revelation 2 looks like that future state. And you can get a little bit of a hint of it in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, as in Adam all, day, all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That talks about our res- resurrection bodies. But each in his own order. Now he talks about three events, one after the other. First, Christ the firstfruits. Christ rose from the dead. He had a resurrection body. Then at his coming, that's Christ's coming, those who belong to Christ. Then we get resurrection bodies. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. This word then, in, then in the passage, epeta and eta, they're in, in Greek, they're, they both mean something that happens after something else. So after we get resurrection bodies, after that comes the end when when he delivers the kingdom after destroying every rule and authority and power. So it, it looks like Christ gets a resurrection body, then we get resurrection body, then he destroys every rule and authority and power, then he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. It looks like there's a gap in there. Maybe you can't absolutely prove it, but it seems consistent with that passage. And then it seems to me the clincher is that this is just the easiest, clearest way to interpret Revelation 20. That that an angel sees the devil bound him, cast him into the bottomless pit, sealed it over him so that he should deceive the nations no more. That seems like a greater restriction of Satan's activity and his demons by implication than what we know now. I, I agree that Satan's power over the nations was diminished when the Great Commission went forth and Jesus sent forth the disciples to preach to all nations. But my goodness, Satan still has impact over many, many nations and kingdoms. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, what pagans uh, sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. In Corinth, Paul was saying, and this was in the church age, Paul was saying that, that, that those people were still sacrificing to demons in those foreign temples, those idol temples. In Corinth, And I think that's true of this present day with many false religions, that there's a demonic empowerment, a demonic uh, force behind false religions that lead people uh, away from Jesus Christ and lead them into all sorts of destructive and evil practices. I just don't think when I look at the world that it fits the idea that Satan has been bound and thrown into the pit and shut the pit and sealed it over him. Okay, it's symbolic language in some ways because Satan is a spirit and there's a chain, you know, it's a symbol. But symbol for what? <clears throat> Looks like it got to be a symbol for really, like complete removal of his influence from the earth. And I just don't think Satan's influence is completely removed from the earth today. And then came to life. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years in Revelation 20, verse 4. I think that's best taken as a bodily resurrection. 
because it says this is the first resurrection. And the same verb, the Greek verb, ezeson, from the verb zao, it's, it's, it's in Greek, the tense is called an aorist indicative. <coughs> um, uh, that is the same verb that the book of Revelation uses to talk about Christ's resurrection. Uh, Revelation 2.8, words of the first and last who died and came to life. Um, and and that, that word is never used of like the amillennialists use it, of just going to be with, with God in heaven. It's used of physical bodily resurrection. And so I think that Revelation 24 means they were raised physically. Uh, their bodies were made new and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That makes sense. And see, <clears throat> when the Bible talks about reigning with Christ, <clears throat> the amillennials say, oh, Christians in heaven are now reigning with Christ. But that isn't the way the Bible talks about reigning with Christ. It, it looks like it's something still future. Luke 19:17. Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. That's future. And you are to be over five cities. 1 Corinthians 6, 3, still future. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more matters pertaining, pertaining to this life? And Revelation 3, 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Nowhere does the Bible say that living Christians now or believers in heaven now in the intermediate state are currently reigning with Christ. So uh, when it says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, I think it's it's quite clearly best understood to mean they rose from the dead, they were given new resurrection bodies, they came to life, and they reigned with Christ on the earth for a thousand years, something happening in the future millennium. Conclusion. I think that this age is going to go on for an unknown number of years still, and then suddenly, maybe today, maybe five years from now, maybe a hundred years from now, I don't know, suddenly one day, I think Christ will return physically, bodily to the earth. We'll be caught up to meet him and to welcome him as a coming king. And, he'll, and we'll be given new resurrection bodies. People who have died, their bodies will be raised and made perfect. But if we're still here on the earth, all of a sudden, wow, we'll feel all young again. <laughs> we want to run and jump. And I didn't, you know, It's been 40 years since I felt that way. I think you're going to be thinking, and even better than that, our bodies will be made perfect and we'll be caught up to meet with Christ and then we'll come with him back to the earth and he'll give us positions of authority and responsibility in various areas over this earth on which he will reign. We will reign with him then <clears throat> in new resurrection bodies that will never grow weak or old again. And all nations will serve him, but not all people will believe. And over the course of many generations, there will be an increase in the number of people who submit, but not willingly, to Christ. And their hearts are still rebellious against him. Um, and then at, uh, at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released from his prison and from the bottomless pit. And he'll lead the unbelievers in the earth in a great rebellion against Christ, but they will be decisively defeated. Now, does that fit <clears throat> with Revelation 20, that picture? It seems to me to fit. Now, we'll read the verse, verses again and see if that picture makes sense. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, 
holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, <clears throat> that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. I think that's still future. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and not, had not received its mark on their foreheads or hand. See, I think this has to be still future, because I don't think we've seen the beast uh, that requires people to worship him and have, uh, have the mark of the beast on their forehead or hand, so you can't buy or sell. I don't think that's happened yet. So this has still got to be future. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Um, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. They will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. Uh, they surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Now, when I read that on a premillennial view, I say, yeah, it makes sense. I don't have to give special meanings to any of the words. It's just, it's just plain language. It's, it's what it means, and that's what it's predicting. So, to me, uh, to my mind, that is a satisfying explanation. Now, I'll stop there before we go on to the remaining question, which is, we go through a tribulation or not. But let, let's just... Does this premillennial view make sense to you? Is it persuasive? I know it sounds unusual, but do you want to interact on that for a while? Yeah, right up here in the front. Oh, my question is where it says the rest Carol, of the Carol, dead... Carol, yes, yeah, go ahead. Uh, the rest of the dead will remain, uh, and then they will come back after the thousand years. Yep. So does... Who are the rest of the dead? I think that's unbelievers. People who haven't trusted in Christ. When Christ comes back, believers will be raised from the dead and get new bodies and reign with Christ. But the unbelievers who aren't who weren't saved, they'll just they'll remain dead for a thousand years still until the resurrection of judgment after the thousand years. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Carol. I didn't say that, but yeah, that's that's important. Yeah. Hmm. I think that means that it'll be pretty evident then who, who was saved and who wasn't. Okay, back here. Yeah, go ahead. What, what's your name again? Cheryl. Cheryl. Um, I have a question. I think you said that people would live 100 years during the millennium, yeah. maybe. Well, yeah. then, as the believers die during that 1,000-year millennium, they get resurrected yet a second time? I don't, um, yeah. Okay. We, are, we were believers before Christ came back. So we get resurrection bodies and we never die again. Okay? But what is that? The sinner will die 100 years old. I think that there's an improvement in everybody's health. Because the earth is better and there aren't so many diseases and... Um, People treat their bodies better, and I don't know. So um, it's a it's a better time even for unbelievers, but they but they eventually die. And I think, Cheryl, yes, I think during that millennium, probably many millions of people will come to trust in Christ, but they won't get new bodies. 
They'll just trust in Christ, they'll grow it, and they'll die and wait for the second resurrection. But you're saying the believers, they will live the entire thousand years? Yes, yes, in okay. new bodies that don't ever grow old. Okay. The people Me. who were believers when Christ came back. <laughs> okay. And that sounds a little strange at first. And that's why these amillennialists who are kind of arguing against all time, they say, ah, oh, that's too strange for me to believe in. But I think it's there. And so I, probably when we're in it, I don't think we'll think it's strange. I think we'll think it's great. Okay. Thank <laughs> okay. you. All right. Yep. I've got to ask your name again. I'm Dean. Dean. But the Isaiah 65 chapters are in the middle there. Verse 17 starts out with saying a new heaven and a new earth God creates. So I'm not sure how that really jives with the millennial interpretation yeah. of what follows there a couple of verses later. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, that would... Um, I mean, it might be, Dean, that you got kind of a telescoping of, of two things together, the dist- far distant and the near distant. Uh, but it also might be just that there is um, a renewed earth that's talked about there as new earth. What, Jesus comes back and then that curse that came with Adam and Eve and the thorns and thistles and the sweat of your face you'll eat bread and, and the, all the ground being... Kind of the natural order being changed when there was sin, that that, that may be the, the the new earth. Go ahead. But again, you know, the language could be figurative where it says, you know, an infant won't live a few days. Yeah. That, that might mean that an infant would never die. Yeah. You could read it that way, too. And 100 years is a long time. Or, you know, I'm just not sure that that's real convincing. I'll give you that and say it is a little hard to understand on any view. Mm-hmm. It just looks to me like it's not now. I, yeah, definitely. And it's not like everything's, it's not like, like everything's perfect where death is no more. It looks like there's something different about it. But how much is figurative? And I, so it's hard, yeah. okay? Yet, it, <laughs> that's, that's all I can do with it. Yeah, Revelation 20 is the main passage. Oh. Okay, what else? Margaret told me somebody had a... Okay, yep. Oh, and I met you in the parking lot and said hello, and I forgot your name. Craig, Craig yeah. I was just wondering if you could clarify something in Matthew 24. It seems there in verse 3, there are two questions being asked. When will the destruction of Jerusalem take place? And when will your second coming be? Yeah. In that chapter, where do you make that distinction and why? Uh-huh. That's a huge question. Um, um, verse 2, just the verse before you asked about, said, there will not be left here one stone upon another, it will not be thrown down. I think that's the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Uh, when the Romans came under Titus and, and destroyed Jerusalem. Um, so I think that was fulfilled, but um, the disciples, I don't think, distinguished in their minds that, that, that what Jesus was predicting about the temple might come at a different time from the end of the age and, and the tribulation and Christ's return. And so he's telling them about a number of things in the chapter. Um, 
I'm not sure just on the spot here I can make a division. Uh, verse 7, nation rise against nation. That's still suffering. Tribu- uh, tribulation, verse 9. Mm. Well, verse 29, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. So, uh, and then they see the, sign, the Son of Man coming in heaven. So, <clears throat> I, the... the, the um, there is a view that makes this all to be tried to be 70 A.D. And there are a few people who say, hey, Jesus already returned, we just didn't see him. <laughs> okay, of kind of extreme, what's called a preterist view, that it all happened already. But I just can't see it that way. So I have to say, because it's so explicit about Jesus coming back, so I have to say that some of this is predicting, Jesus was predicting the destruction of the temple, but then he goes on to far future things yet. Yeah future tribulation, and a future return of his to, to earth. I don't know if, Craig, that helps at all. Go, go ahead. I'm sorry, say that again. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just kind of unsettled on the issue. I've read what some writers say about this particular chapter. Yeah. But if you uh, look, I believe it's in Isaiah 13, mm-hmm. verse 10. Yeah. The language being used there is very similar to the language in Matthew 24. Yeah. And I'm... It just makes me wonder where you place an emphasis on what's figurative and what's literal. Well, that's the hard question. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't. I, I know my, my friend R.T. France in England wrote a commentary on Matthew, and he's arguing the sun will be dark and the moon will not give us light. That's just a, Ill, a poetic speech for God's judgment coming. But I don't see why it can't be literal. See, because it's, it's, um, some of the passages he looks at are not so explicit as that one. And I, I just think, well, I don't think people in the first century would take that as imagery. I think they'd, they'd take it as, yeah, this is what's going to happen. The sun's going to be dark. The moon's going to be dark. I mean, isn't that, what, isn't that how people read it? Just reading it normally. So um, I think there's, there's more explicit detail about the, the end. But, but when Craig's asking this, you can see how you get in the academic world and people are saying, well, this is figurative, this isn't, this is you know, imagery, this isn't, no, this is literal, this isn't. And it's hard because we're talking about the future and it hasn't happened yet. And that's what makes it harder to, harder to know. Yeah, okay. Yeah, way over here. Well, okay, uh, Vic. Yeah. In the scripture, there's one verse I can't Remember the verse where it talks Vic, about... Vic, you have to hold it closer. Oh, there, there's a scripture someplace in Revelation. I can't find it, but it, I think it says about taking the jaw of the ass and being prepared to the battle. I, that isn't ringing a bell with me either. It's, um, it's, but, uh, uh, Samson did that back in the book of Judges, took the jawbone of a donkey and killed okay. people, but I don't know if it's... But, but well, this, uh, this is my question. Either in the tribulation or during that thousand-year millennium or at the end of that thousand years... Is there any period of time where we as Christians will actually go into battle against Satan ourselves? I don't know against Satan. I mean, I I do think we have authority in this age to rebuke demonic forces and command them to leave in Jesus' name. We talked about that way back in chapter 20. Uh, And I do think that Christians, even in this age, can be given positions of authority as police or uh, you know, soldiers to fight against foreign invaders and things like that. And, and so uh, when Jesus comes back and reigns on the earth, I suppose there will be some Christians who have uh, military and police 
authority given to them uh, to keep peace on the earth. Um, but that isn't against Satan because Satan's removed. So that's just to keep peace from sin that's in people's hearts. Um, so I, I, I don't, I'm not sure I think of anything. I, I, I don't think that, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that there's anything except the Lord that kind of comes and actually gives this decisive defeat against Satan. Yeah, Rosemary, just hold on. Is the microphone coming? Yes. Um, this is the millennium is before the new earth and okay. heavens. Yep. I'm just having a little problem understanding how all of the resurrected believers can be living on this earth yep. at that time. Why not? Too crowded, you mean? Yes. <laughs> Hopefully. Just, I just recommend that you get in an airplane and go any direction from Phoenix. There's a lot of room. The problem is no water. Um, but just say the Lord changes the earth so that it all is like the Garden of Eden again. See, then there's lots of room. There's tons of space. And if you don't think there's a lot of space in Arizona, I mean, try Montana or try Canada with better weather. I mean, there's tons of room on the earth. Well, he doesn't change. Okay, look, part of this confusion is me. Part of this confusion is me, where I've got got new heavens and new earth coming here, but I think there is a renewed earth at the millennium, and that's the that's I haven't been clear there. I think that um, um, the final eternal state, when the place where we'll live forever. The Bible often calls that a new heavens and new earth. But I think when Christ comes back, I think, although premillennialists aren't sure about this and they differ, but I think it's going to be like the Garden of Eden restored on earth all over the earth now. So the desert will blossom like the rose or the crocus, depending on your translation. And and springs of water will appear in the desert and there'll be all sorts of abundance that we cannot imagine now over the earth during the millennium. I think that'll happen. And so um, no more thorns and thistles to, to poke you <laughs> and, and no more mosquitoes and bees to sting you. Uh, I don't know what they'll do for a living, the mosquitoes, but anyway. Uh, Ron? After the thousand years, do people go to heaven then? Because if they didn't, then there'll be no chance for some people to go to heaven. Yeah, I think that believers, people who become believers during the millennium will be just like us right now. They'll live ordinary lives. They'll grow old and die. They won't have resurrection bodies like we do. But they'll be believers in Jesus. They'll worship him. When they die, their souls go to the Lord in heaven. Just like ours now. And then the the second resurrection, then they'll get the new resurrection bodies also. Go ahead. And then they go to heaven. Yeah. Well, see, I think their souls go to heaven just like ours would if we died today. And after the thousand years, well, then then you get this picture in Revelation 21 where the, the, the new Jerusalem comes down to earth and and uh, they're kind of linked together. And then the heavenly city, that's this huge new city, comes down to the earth and they're joined together. And we live in both of them somehow forever. So that we'll get to that in two weeks or three weeks. Okay. 
whoa, I know this sounds unusual. And, uh, but I just, I'm just trying to say, this looks like to me what this is teaching. So I believe it. And uh, is there a takeaway for us today? Yeah, be faithful in what the Lord calls you to do. Uh, be respond- In a way, all of this life is just the Lord testing us. Are you going to be faithful in bringing the refreshments on Sunday morning, <laughs> or, or you know, or in or in caring for that friend that God or that that family member that God wants you to care for? He's He's giving you responsibilities and testing you and preparing you for future responsibility. So whatever He calls you to, whatever He asks you to do, uh, be faithful and trust Him, and uh, and grow in in relationship with Him. Okay, are we okay with that? No, I've got. I've got a few minutes left, and I'm going to walk through the end of the outline on why I think, I think, I think Christians will go through this time of great tribulation, but with the provision that you understand that there are many really wonderful, solid, wise Bible teachers who don't agree with me on this. (laughs) So if you don't agree with me, I'm okay. Let's look at uh, point E on your outline, the time of a great tribulation. There are people who argue for a pre, let's see where I am here, a pre-tribulational rapture. Pre-tribulational would mean Christ comes back before the tribulation. Oh, well, here's a new twist now that we are taken out of the earth before this time of great suffering. The arguments are, number one, it's inappropriate for believers to be on earth during that time when God's wrath is poured out on the earth. And number two, Revelation 3.10 seems to promise that the church will be removed. Revelation 3.10, because you have kept my word about... This is to the church in Philadelphia. Jesus says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And, um, and so uh, if, if Christ comes after the tribulation, here's another argument. If Christ comes after the tribulation and defeats all his enemies, I mean, that, now, see, they're arguing against my view. They're saying, you say there's going to be a tribulation and then Christ is going to come back and defeat all his enemies, the rebelled against him. Well, where are you going to get all these unbelievers to rebel later then? I thought he defeated everybody. Um, where are these unbelievers going to come from to populate that millennial kingdom? And then uh, there's another argument for this, and that is if you believe this, then you don't have to think, well, there are going to be signs yet to be fulfilled, like you know the Antichrist and the tribulation and, and wars and rumors of wars, because those will happen during the tribulation, and, and Christ could come back suddenly, surprisingly, anytime right now. Those are the four arguments in favor. My response to that is, It just seems to me inconsistent with the New Testament descriptions of the tribulation to say that all suffering during that time is the result of the wrath of God. Much is due to the fact that there's evil in people's hearts. Wickedness is multiplied, Matthew 24, 12. And there's a persecution of the church. And there's opposition from Satan. It isn't just the wrath of God that makes it hard on the earth. It's, It's the evil in people's hearts. And it's Satan's activity during the tribulation. And then Jesus promised that Revelation 3 passage... Jesus promises to keep the church in Philadelphia safe from the trial, hour of trial. That's not enough to say the entire church throughout the church age is going to be kept from the hour of trial uh, or taken out of the world prior to the tribulation. It looks to me like that's just 
addressed to a specific church in a specific situation and isn't meant to be addressed to all believers for all times. And then number three, Christ's defeat of his enemies doesn't mean they'll all be just vaporized or annihilated or cast into hell. Some of them will just submit and they'll say, I give up, you're king over the earth. And they may not in their hearts believe in him, but they'll, they'll just submit to him and uh, they'll surrender, but they'll be unbelievers. And then as far as how can I believe that Jesus could come back anytime? Because I'm not sure if more, some of these signs have been fulfilled or not. So I'm saying... I, I think there's going to be yet a greater Antichrist. I think there's going to be a persecution that's coming greater, greater than the one we've seen. But I'm not quite sure, so, because it also tells me to be ready. So maybe Jesus will come back any time. Uh, so I think it's unlikely, but it's possible the signs have been fulfilled. And that was two lessons ago that I talked about that. And that can let me believe that Christ could come back at any time. Now, I've got to say one more thing. The, the, there's an underlying desire that's driving the pre-tribulation view. It isn't that people don't want to go through a tribulation, although who would? But the, there's an underlying view, and that is we've got to get Israel and the church separate. <clears throat> that is, during the tribulation, there will be a distinction between the church and Israel. So Jesus comes back, and he takes the church up to heaven, and Israel then is stays on the earth and trusts in Jesus as the Messiah. And the reason that pre-tribulationists want to say that is that they've got, a, they've got a conviction that the Old Testament promises that Israel will inherit the land are going to be fulfilled literally. So you've got to have Jewish people who become believers and trust in Jesus as the Messiah inheriting the land of Israel. And so you see here, Christ comes back, the church goes up to heaven for seven years, we're not here. Church is gone. Who's on earth? Israel is here on the earth. And so you've got a church in heaven, Israel that becomes believers and trusts in Christ on the earth. And um, that way you can get the fulfillment of these promises that the people of Israel will inherit the land, uh, the literal land of Israel um, at some time in the future. And uh, my colleague Paul Wagner, who's an Old Testament professor at Phoenix Seminary, he would hold that, for instance. And I think Daryl Delusse holds that. And uh, I think John doesn't. John Delhousse. <laughs> Sorry, he teaches New Testament. So we have a little friendly discussion here uh, at the seminary. And I respect that view, and I'm not sure that I'm right. Uh, but I think that, uh, that the Israel, promises of Israel inheriting the land are probably fulfilled in the, in the true, the greater Israel. That's all of us, the whole church. And we're going to get more than just the land of Israel, so we're going to inherit the whole earth. So um, that's the way I would understand it. I'm going to skip over the mid-tribulation rapture um, the view of Daniel. You can read that in my book if you want to. Daniel 7, that in the middle of the tribulation, Christ will come back. That's a kind of variety of the, of the, um, of the pre-trib view. But it doesn't look like there's an indication in those passages that that will happen. Where do I come down then? I think that the New Testament doesn't... <clears throat> Anywhere say the church will be removed from the earth before the tribulation. And it looks to me <clears throat> like <clears throat> I just can't find a verse that talks about a secret coming of Christ. It looks noisy and loud and public every time it's talked about. So 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, but nobody's going to hear it. And the voice of the archangel, but it's going to be secret. And the sound of the trumpet of God, but nobody's going to hear it. Um, I just don't find that persuasive. 
So I don't think this talks about a secret rapture of the church. I think it talks about a public coming of Christ to gather believers to himself. And there seems to me to be only one loud trumpet call in different passages. Matthew 24, send his angels with a loud trumpet. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the sound of the trumpet of God. 1 Corinthians 15, at the last trumpet. I think it, I think it's, it's, it's very likely that it's just all the same trumpet talked about in different passages. And Matthew 24, I just don't think, refers to Jewish people saved during the tribulation because Jesus is speaking to his disciples that are going to be there on the earth and those who are going to follow them at that time about persecution to come. And then it just doesn't seem to me that the New Testament talks about two different returns of Christ, a secret one for believers and then a public one uh, to establish the millennium. But that's where I would come down, and my conclusion then is, with the great majority of the church throughout history, that the church will go through the time of tribulation predicted by Jesus, and that we Christians should be prepared to endure suffering. In fact, it's frequently been God's way to bring his people through suffering to glory. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And I, I've got to say, for my own Self, I don't, I don't look forward to in, in any way or long for any time of persecution or suffering for the church. I hope it doesn't come. Jesus said we're to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But then I also have to say that God still promises all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And the testimony of believers throughout history, when times have become very difficult for the church, is that their walk with God has grown very close. And Jesus has been near to them, and he's walked with them and strengthened them and given them great joy in the midst of hardship. And so that's where our focus should be. Be faithful unto death, Revelation 2.10, and I will give you the crown of life. Oh, let's see. Do you want to you want to interact with me just for a minute on that? Anybody just just have a I'm I'm right at the end, but I could take one or two. Okay, Melanie Frey. Yeah. I've just believed for a long time, almost thirty years, um in and you haven't addressed Second Thessalonians um to uh, verse 7 about the mystery of lawlessness being revealed when the great restrainer is taken away. Yes. And could you just address that, um, how the Holy Spirit is involved with this? Yeah. Do you understand? I, I yeah. always believe that was the Holy Spirit and yeah. then when it was removed. Some people think it's the church being taken out of the world. But I think it's possible it is the Holy Spirit's restraining work on the evil uh, of, the, of the world generally. Um, and if that is removed, evil could become very, very evil and prepare the way for the Antichrist. I'm not sure, Melanie, but I, I'm, I'm attracted to that view. Is that answering what you're, what you're holding? Yeah. Do you understand that I don't have a lot of certainty about what I'm saying here? I just, I'm trying to be fair with you. Uh, and the passages are not easy to put together. And I, I could be wrong on this. I didn't. I didn't teach on the Trinity or on the deity of Christ or on salvation by faith alone. I didn't teach to say I could be wrong on this. I don't think I am wrong on any of those things. And I don't think you should believe differently on those things. On this, I could be wrong. And I'm just, I'm just trying to say here are arguments both ways and we have freedom to differ. Are you all right with that? Is that 
<laughs> okay. Look, um, let's let's do this. Uh, Jesus is going to come. Everybody agrees he's going to reign as king over the earth. 